Welcome to the Eccles Business Buzz Podcast. My name is Lancia Klingensmith, and today we are lucky enough to be joined by not one, but two incredible guests, Heidi Woodbury and Bob McDonald. Heidi Woodbury is the Vice President for Institutional Advancement here at the University of Utah and actually began her career at the U as Chief Advancement Officer for KUER-FM before moving to the David Eccles School of Business in 1996. We were so sad to lose her to the Central University, but have been so thankful for her leadership through some tough times. Robert McDonald graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in the top 2% of his class in 1975 before earning an MBA from the University of Utah in 1978. Bob has had an extraordinary career as chairman, president, and CEO of the Procter & Gamble Company. Under his leadership, P&G's stock price rose from $51.10 the day he became CEO to $81.64 on the day his last quarterly results were announced, a 60% increase from 2009 to 2013, which is just incredible. But that's not even the most impressive thing to note. On July 29, 2014, Bob was confirmed unanimously by the United States Senate to serve as the Secretary of Veterans Affairs under President Obama. Welcome to the podcast, Bob and Heidi. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. We are so excited and figured we, let's just jump on in. Can you both take a turn? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your backgrounds, and your connection to the Eccles community. Heidi, why don't you go first? Well, yes, I'd be happy to. So I've had a long relationship with the University of Utah. In fact, it's my 35th year of serving the institution, and it has been um, really a privilege and an honor for me to do that. I know some people know that I actually grew up on an Army base, so I have a connection to Bob. I have a soft spot for the military and the people that serve our country. And anyway, I grew up on a military base and I wasn't planning to go to college. I thought I would stay there and get a job, which many kids did. And I had a high school counselor that really um, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and encouraged me to apply for a scholarship, which I did. And that scholarship changed my life. And that's why I'm at the university today. And that's why I'm really passionate about the work that I do. So I, as Lynch just said, I started my career in public broadcasting, then 22 years at the David Eccles School of Business, working on lots of projects. And that's how I met Bob. And then now uh, with the Central University. Well, I'm deeply indebted to uh, the University of Utah and, and specifically the Eccles School and, and Heidi personally. When I was in the military from 1975 to 1980, the only MBA program that was available that was of any quality was the University of Utah's off-campus program. Uh, I started studying about 1976 or so, and I was in the last graduating class before the University of Utah ended the program in 1978. I got my degree in December of 1978. And with an undergraduate degree in engineering from West Point, it was really the MBA that opened the business world to me after I left the military. So deeply indebted to the university for that. It was a great experience. And if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Dean Taylor Randall's father was my accounting professor 
And if you look at my transcript, I think I got virtually all A's, but there may have been one B plus in there. And I think it was somewhere in accounting. Um, but then I'm deeply <laughs> indebted to Heidi as well, because it was during the time we were announcing uh, P&G's acquisition of the Gillette company about 2005 or so that Heidi and I really got into contact with each other. And I was invited to come to the university and speak and also got involved in the building of the new the new building, which is a beautiful place, and was given the opportunity to help with one of the classrooms, which my wife and I did. And I, I love the classroom. The only thing I've said to Heidi about the classroom is it's so beautiful looking out the window on the Rocky Mountains. I doubt anybody's studying in the classroom. But uh, I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> I know. I miss being on campus this time of year, being able to look out at those beautiful snowy mountains. And campus is always so beautiful this time of year. To get in a little deeper, this pilot season of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast is focused on empathy. So I'm curious what empathy means to each of you. Bob, do you want to do you want to start? Well, empathy to me is a, an incredibly important leadership trait. You really have to be able to put yourself in the other person's position and understand that not just logically but viscerally in order to be able to provide the proper leadership. I feel uh, like I was advantaged in learning empathy because when you're in the military, particularly when you're uh, an airborne ranger infantry officer like I was, and you're out in the middle of the Arctic with your soldiers, and there's only 10 minutes of daylight a day, and it's 70 degrees below zero, and you know that if any of them were to stop and stand in place for a while, they would freeze to death. When your life is in danger, it's easier to develop empathy. And I think that that military experience was a big help to me. And I tried to apply that same level of empathy to the leadership experiences I had after the military. Wow. I would say the same thing um, as far as putting somebody else before you or, or putting yourself in their shoes. And Bob, one of your tenets is about the platinum rule. The golden rule is treat others as you would like to be treated. And the platinum rule is to treat others as they would like to be treated. And I think we miss that so often. And it's just so important to take a moment and look at why somebody maybe is angry. Anger and passion go hand in hand. Sometimes we're not listening to what it is they're trying to tell us. And um, sometimes it's the, just the little things that go a long way. I think Heidi makes a great point on the transition from the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated, versus the platinum rule, treat other people the way they want to be treated. Because that presupposes you know them in a diverse organization particularly a global organization like the Procter & Gamble Company, you have to work very hard to understand other cultures, other ways, other languages, other ways of thinking. Because if you treat people the way you want to be treated, you're presupposing that they will have the same needs you have, which, of course, in a global environment is just simply not true. Absolutely. That's so interesting. And do you think empathy has changed throughout your career, how you view empathy? In my case, I would say that the military experience really was what taught me about empathy. And in my business experience or in my later government experience at the Department of Veterans Affairs, 
I've tried to infuse the culture with the same level of empathy, but it's more difficult. In the military where you have what's called um, in extremist circumstances where your life is in danger, it's somehow more urgent, somehow easier to develop those levels of empathy. In business or in government where your life's not in danger, at least not in immediate danger, it's more difficult. But if you can somehow do that, and I tried to do it in many different ways through developing intimate relationships with employees, it's a hard goal to achieve, but it's a good one to try to achieve. For sure. You know, I've always really had a passion for people. I genuinely really like people. I like learning about them. But I would say early on in my career, and I've always worked in a nonprofit setting, I, you know, I really thought management or leading was a little bit more about talking or controlling. And it wasn't until I got mm, just more experience. And I'm going to say too, when I came to the business school and was surrounded by lots of great business leaders, I started to learn that really it was much more about compassion and caring and helping people to be the best they can be. And as Bob said once when he was here speaking, you know, you just need to give your people the right tools as a leader and then stand back and let them go. And so for me, I just feel like it's come more to the surface as I've matured and been less about me trying to manipulate or control something. Heidi's empathy is her secret weapon. Um, you know, being in, being in development, her um, job is to raise money to help support the university and its projects. But she never asks for it. She doesn't have to ask for it because she understands you and your family and your needs and marries up the needs of the university with your needs. And it just all comes together without really having to ask for it. And I think that's the best kind of development officer you can have. Thank you. I agree. We're so lucky to have Heidi at the U. She's the best. And Heidi, I have a question that's a little bit along those lines, you've dealt with your fair share of difficult circumstances in your role as vice president of institutional advancement. I mean, even just 2020 alone, it was an election year. We were all dealing with COVID. We've all heard it a million times. It was all just so unprecedented. How have you relied on empathy, not only for those maybe involved in those difficult circumstances directly, but also when discussing them with donors and key stakeholders of the university who might disagree with the university policies or have different viewpoints? Well, I'm going to say I'm fortunate because I really don't have a lot of people, um, and they may disagree, but they probably take it up with somebody else, like the president or someone else. I get a few, but for the most part, I get people wanting to help and wanting to make a difference. And this year has just been moving. It's just been incredibly moving. We had, uh, you know, in our hospital, we had frontline caregivers that people were donating PPE. They were bringing in food. We had donors giving iPads so that loved ones that were in the ICU could stay in touch with their family. That to me is just amazing. And then we had donors helping our students get hotspots so that they could continue to study. And, you know, we learned about the digital divide. So, you know, everyone has a rough day here and there, but 85% of my time is on the most positive aspects of this institution. And I feel so fortunate to really see humanity at its best. That's incredible. 
Bob, can you tell us a little bit more about what the transition from military life to life in the business world? What was that like? Well, for me, that was quite a long time ago, uh, 1980, but I saw it both in my own case in 1980, but as Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, I saw it for other veterans during my time in office from 2014 to 2017. And uh, basically, it's, it's the same. The issue is when you're in the military, you have an incredible sense of purpose. Your purpose is to keep the country safe. And I think all of us would argue that's a very high purpose, and it's, it's a very inspiring purpose, and it's a very energizing purpose. And so the question is, when you leave the military, how do you redirect that purpose towards some other passion that you may have so you have the same kind of inspiration, the same kind of motivation that you had every day in the military? So for me, it was relatively easy, relatively straightforward, because I went to work for the Procter & Gamble company whose purpose is to improve the lives of the world's consumers. And I knew that every day I could work on delivering products to people that improve their lives. Um, people who are less fortunate maybe and, and choose a career with a company perhaps with a less inspiring purpose, they may find that satisfaction in joining a group like Jake Wood's Team Rubicon. Jake developed a nonprofit organization called Team Rubicon where service members leaving the service come work in their free time with Team Rubicon, and they help alleviate the natural disasters that may occur around the world. So when there were floods in Houston a few years ago, Jake and his teams went in there and helped people who needed their help using the skills that they learned in the military. So it's all about a redirection of purpose and finding that purpose. Unfortunately, those who who, who may struggle with the transition or may um, have depression, have trouble finding that new purpose. That's a big part of what we try to do in the Department of Veterans Affairs, help veterans find that purpose. Yeah, you've done some incredible work with the organization Rally Point, whose mission is to prevent suicide among service members and veterans. And I imagine that as a veteran yourself, you have a deep sense of empathy for our military and their families. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with that organization? Uh, first of all, when you have served in the military and in the organizations I have, you come away with um, a thought that is a thought I used at the uh, confirmation hearing I had with the Senate when President Obama asked me to be a Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. My predecessor had resigned because of a scandal that occurred in Phoenix. Some of the senators said to me, in fact, Richard Burr, the Republican senator from North Carolina, said to me, why the heck would you want this job? You're retired from Procter & Gamble. Why would you want this job? And I said, if not me, who? And I think that's a sense of responsibility that all of us feel. And it goes back to the this sense of inadequacy that I think to some degree all of us have as veterans. I feel inadequate as a veteran because I never served in a combat situation. Those who have served in combat feel inadequate because they came away with all their arms and legs. Those who lost an arm or a leg in combat may feel inadequate because they came home and their brethren didn't. It all goes back to the fact that those we've served with are in cemeteries dotted all over the world, 
And we are more fortunate that we're able to live more normal lives than those we served with. And I think in that way, that's the um, the ultimate generator of empathy is uh, you just feel inadequate. The movie Saving Private Ryan ends with that sequence where Matt Damon playing Private Ryan walks through the Omaha Cemetery and he stands in front of the grave of Captain Wood or Captain Miller, rather, who was responsible for saving his life. And in front of that grave, he turns to those loved ones that are with him, and he says, tell me that I earned it. And in many of my speeches, when I was secretary of the VA, I tell people that's what animates me every day. Tell me that I earned it. And the fact that even one veteran would feel the need to take their life, I've got to work harder to earn that. So what we're doing at Rally Point is we're using our network, which is the largest network of veterans in the military community in the country. And we're using machine learning and other tools, partnering with Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard University to identify those people who may be at risk and then get them the help that they need so that um, bad things don't happen. And uh, it's, it's rewarding work, but as I say, any day there's any veteran who is suffering from depression or contemplating taking their own lives is one veteran too many. Absolutely. I appreciate you painting that picture with the connection to Saving Private Ryan. That's just an incredibly difficult topic to wrap your head around and really, as Heidi said earlier, put yourself in their shoes. And it's incredible work that you're doing. So thanks for sharing that. Can you each describe a time in your lives when someone showed you empathy? Well, I'll go back to where Bob started, which, you know, he talks about in the military, it's like life and death. And that's when I think I have experienced empathy from others the most when I'm dealing with a birth or a death or an illness. And I've been so thankful, you know, whether it's a a colleague or an employer, you know, or friend or family that uh, reaches out to help you and, and adjust things for you so that you can get through. So that's what I would say. It's probably when I'm in my darkest hour is when I have been fortunate to have somebody reach out. When, when I learned about empathy other than in the military, it was in 1977, uh, the summer I met my wife. Uh, her name's Deanne. We've been married 43 years now. And she taught me empathy. I think she's the most empathetic person I've ever met. And I, I remember when I first met her, I, I was wondering how I could impress this young lady. We were, we were together at a wedding of my West Point classmate. And of course, you want to impress uh, someone, you know, but I learned about her. She was a straight A student, a Phi Beta Kappa kind of person, homecoming queen, cheerleader, all of that. And I said, well, you know, she's not going to be interested in me. I'm, a, I'm an infantryman, you know. And, and so we were together as a wedding group going out that night. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And we walked into a, a dance place and I went up to the counter I thought to order her something to drink and something to eat, you know, trying to be chivalrous about it. And um, the guy looked at me and said, hey, buddy, this is a checkers table. This isn't the counter where you order stuff. And I was so embarrassed, but she worked so hard. She worked so hard to make me feel good about that. Uh, there I was in my polyester leisure suit and my plastic leather shoes. I was just an army guy, but she made me feel okay about that. It all worked out. Bob, during your time at Procter & Gamble that you've mentioned briefly, 
the company was widely recognized for its leadership efforts. Having both been in leadership roles yourselves, how would you describe the role that empathy plays in leadership development? Wow, that's a great question. Um, at the Procter & Gamble Company, as in any organization that's known for leadership development, we had our own leadership model. It was one I helped create. We called it the 5E model. The 5E stood for envision, engage, energize, enable, and execute. Those are the five E's. And we would spend a lot of time training the behaviors that were behind each one of those E's. Leadership is nothing more than observing a collective set of behaviors than labeling that leadership. And what I used to tell the people I would train, and I, I still believe this today, is I can train you in all the behaviors of leadership. Uh, they're, they're technical behaviors, they can be trained. We can give you the judgment to decide to use them. What I can't train you in is the love you have to have for the people you work with. And it's that love that makes your behaviors authentic. It's that love that leads to the empathy. And uh, I, I've talked a lot about love in organizations and love of people. And I really believe the very best leaders have that love. And that love shows up as empathy. And it's hard to train. It's easier to train in the military where your life's in danger and you have other people doing things to save your life. It's harder to train in a non-military or a less urgent context. But that's one of the things I've tried to do over the years. Do you think that love that you're talking about can be developed? Or do you think you really got to have it from the get-go? Well, I'm hoping it can be developed. I think, I, you know, back to my wife, I think during my time in the military, I was trained to not show emotion. I was trained to deal with circumstances that were difficult and deal with them unemotionally. Uh, in essence, I was trained to not be empathetic in many ways, at least not overtly empathetic. And my wife retrained me and, and retrain me to say, hey, you know what? It's, it's okay to shed a tear at a movie. It's okay to uh, feel so strongly about someone uh, that you want to hug them, that you love them. And in essence, that's what we have to do in the Department of Veterans Affairs because we're very good at training people to go to the battlefield. We know how to train people to go to the battlefield, to not be emotional, to be able to make tough decisions in tough circumstances, what we're not as good at as a society and as an organization is training people to come off the battlefield. And as you can imagine, the skills that, that cause you to, to survive the battlefield, uh, things like hypervigilance, things like don't get emotional, things like be very directive, those are things that don't do very well in a marriage. And so when we're taking that veteran off the battlefield, we need to retrain them into the skills and the characteristics that lead to good relationships outside the military. Absolutely. All right. I want to take just a quick break to tell you all about an exciting opportunity to hear more from our Dean, Taylor Randall. That's right. We are teaming up with the Dean of the Eccles School to bring you the inside scoop in a brand new series of fireside discussions, the Taylor Talks. Hear about new initiatives like the Center for Business, Health, and Prosperity, our world-class learning experiences, 
and how the Eccles School is making an impact, not only just here local in the Utah community, but really across the globe. Join us for this new series featuring our brightest leaders at the school, and of course, everyone's favorite, Dean Randall. The Taylor Talks are coming live to a screen near you. To learn more, visit us at eccles.link slash taylortalks. Again, that's eccles.link slash taylortalks. Let's get back to the show. Heidi, how would you describe the role that empathy has played in leadership development for you? Well, I'm thinking about, um, you know, about failure when somebody makes a misstep and they're traumatized by it, you know, they're embarrassed. And for me, I think that is such a great time to step back and look at what happened and see what you can do to help get them off the cliff because failure is such a great learning opportunity usually. Hopefully it's not too expensive of a failure, but you learn so much through it. But most people, uh, you know, they don't want to fail. We, we have a hard time accepting failure. And I feel empathy is a great way to help people recover. They've got to figure out how to get back out there. You can't just tuck in and go away. You've got to brush off and figure out how you're going to go back out and try it again. What advice would you give to leaders, Heidi, that are trying to help people through that failure? Well, what I would do is probably, um, first of all, ask the person if they've owned it. Because you have to own it. If you make a mistake, you have to accept it. You have to own it. That's one giant step right there. And then second, I would probably say, what is it that's bothering you about this failure? Let's talk about it. You know, is it how you're seen in the office or, you know, what can we do to get you from place A to place B or point A to point B? Because usually it's more in our head than it is anywhere else. It's our self-talk. Absolutely. Bob, do you mind if we jump back just a little bit? I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about that day, July 29th, 2014. You've just been confirmed unanimously by the United States Senate. What was that like? Well, it was a, a very a very busy day, Lynch. As I said, <laughs> the, the previous secretary had resigned and there was a crisis in Phoenix. And the president and his team were very eager to get a new secretary in place. And the problem in government is you legally have to wait until you're confirmed to be able to act. In fact, if you act as if you have already been confirmed and you aren't confirmed, the Senate generally will not confirm you. So uh, that's a prescription for disaster. So everyone was in such a hurry that that day they wanted to swear me in, which meant the president couldn't do it, the vice president couldn't do it. Literally, it was uh, a staff member who swore me in. My brother happened to be in town, so he held the Bible for my swearing in. But I still feel bad about it because I would have preferred to have my wife there and have a ceremony to reward her for all of the uh, sacrifices she had to make uh, for us to do that. But that wasn't able to happen. So it was an incredibly busy day. And uh, we had to get things going. Of course, the first thing I did was I went to Phoenix. In the military, we have a saying called, run to the gunfire. If there's a problem in the organization, if you hear the guns firing on the battlefield, run to the gunfire. Don't run away from it. So it was my very first trip. And I went right to Phoenix to figure out what went wrong that created the crisis. Wow. 
what a whirlwind that must have been. In preparation for today's episode, Heidi shared with me some leadership tenets that you, Bob, had presented as part of a business leaders lecture series in 2010. She spoke to me about how they had such a profound impact on her and her career, how she reflects on them often. I was wondering if you might share some of those with us today. Well, I'd be happy to. The whole thing comes from a process where when I speak, uh, particularly to students, I encourage them to be introspective about their own leadership, to be introspective and deliberate. And as a result, I try to role model that by talking about my leadership beliefs And I talk about the cathartic experiences that they came from. So, for example, my first leadership belief, and we've already talked somewhat about this, is the importance of purpose. Everyone must have a purpose in life. It would be disastrous to meander through life without direction and without a purpose. And I try to take my audience back and I say, okay, imagine you're in a hospital room somewhere in Salt Lake City. You're about to die. And people you love say to you, did you accomplish your purpose in life? What would you say? And if, unfortunately, you didn't have an answer, that would be terrible because that would mean there was a wasted life. Many of the tenants also come from my experiences at Procter & Gamble in the military at West Point. One of my beliefs is that character is the most important trait of a leader. I define character as uh, putting the needs of the organization above yourself. And I remind those listening that in the military, officers always learn that they eat after their soldiers. So even though uh, we wouldn't run out of food, you would always symbolically put the needs of your soldiers above yourself by letting the soldiers eat before you did. Another part of that character is, is telling the truth, is having integrity. And um, I tell the story that West Point, we have an honor code. We don't lie, cheat, steal, nor tolerate people who do. And that's very important to us. And another part of that integrity is captured in the West Point Cadet Prayer, where we say, help us to choose the harder right rather than the easier wrong. In business in particular, businesses get in trouble when they do the wrong thing. And usually they do a small wrong thing, which leads to larger and larger wrong things. And you have to always be vigilant that you're doing the right thing. And usually the right thing is the harder thing to do. Uh, Those are just a few of the thoughts, uh, but I'd be happy to come back to the you and, and share them all again. Good. That would be incredible. Heidi, what was it that really resonated with you about those leadership tenants and how have you seen them play out in your career and your life? Well, for me, they all are really quite common sense, if you think about it. And I think that's why they speak so much to me. And I was teasing Bob before we started that he's really the master in this. I don't have a business degree. And so I've learned leadership, you know, from the school of hard knocks. And I rely on my intuition. I rely on it a lot. And I think that's what spoke to me. He's like, doing the right thing is what guides me every day, you know? Absolutely. Bob, you mentioned everybody having to have a sense of purpose. What would you guys say your sense of purpose is right now? Well, I'm involved in a number of philanthropic activities, and you had mentioned uh, Rally Point, and obviously the thing I'm, I'm still trying to give back to the military community, and I'm really focused on trying to save as many lives as we can. The idea that 
20 veterans take their lives a day is just antithetical to anything I believe in. So we've got to get them the help that they need so that doesn't happen. And by the way, we know that if if we connect veterans to the VA, that that rate of, of suicide goes down dramatically. So we've got to get people connected, particularly today in the COVID environment where isolation is becoming more common depression is becoming more common. The suicide of all people is becoming more common. Uh, we've got to we've got to get people connected, and we've got to get them the help that they need. Well, I'd say for me that this university is my purpose. It you know has been a transformative experience for me, and every day that I come to work, this is not a job. This is a calling for me. It's well beyond that, and I'm blessed to have that. How many people can say they have a job that has so much meaning? them. Heidi used the word transformative, and I I really believe that. Education is one of the most transformative human endeavors available. And when you think about the difference the University of Utah MBA made in my life, I think there's a perfect example of how transformative that educational experience can be. If it weren't for those professors getting in that Air Force aircraft and flying out to uh, North Carolina every Friday to teach us on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, I would have never gone to the Procter & Gamble company, probably would have never been Secretary of the VA. I mean, who knows what wouldn't have happened. So that's, I think, what Heidi says about education and that experience be transformative is so true. Absolutely. The domino effect of education is just so profound, and you're an incredible example of that. Well, and you look at the difference education made after World War II is... I know my father went to college on the GI Bill, was the first person in his family to do so. Um, Another example of how transformative education is. Absolutely. If our listeners today are wondering, like, I don't know that I have that purpose that Bob and Heidi were talking about, what advice would you give them about finding that and discovering what what their purpose might be? Don't don't feel bad about that. Uh, sometimes it takes time. But my suggestion is to look back across your life and look for threads of continuity. In my life, I was a Boy Scout, and I loved being a Boy Scout. I loved doing service projects. I loved being involved in my church and the activities of my church, again, doing service projects. I applied first applied to go to West Point when I was in sixth grade. I wanted to live a different life. I wanted to help people. And then when I graduated from West Point, rather than I was in the top of my class, as you had mentioned, and rather than going into the Corps of Engineers, which is typically what happens for the, the people on the top of the class at West Point, I went in the infantry because I felt I could make the biggest difference leading in those days men. I think you look for those threads of continuity. And then as you try to connect those various activities in your life and you get in touch with what your passion is, then you try to articulate how that may ladder up to a bigger purpose. Heidi, is there anything you'd add to that? No, I agree. That's great. Well, I think we are just about out of time today through the other episodes, kind of organically, folks have shared what books they're reading. And I know it's kind of random, but I'd love to know what books you guys are reading right now. What's on your nightstand? Well, you may not be surprised, but I'm reading President Obama's memoirs, The Promised Land. He was kind enough the funny thing is, I as soon as it was coming out, I bought a copy because I wanted to read it. I deeply admire 
him and the job that he did as president over eight years. But then later I got a copy in the mail, which he inscribed to me. The thing I would say about it, so it's a wonderful, wonderful book, but I wouldn't read it. I would buy the audible version because he actually reads the book himself and they hear him actually read it himself. He wrote the book using a legal pad and he hand wrote the entire book himself. He's a very bright guy, very great writer. And uh, to hear him actually say it is so much more meaningful to me than if I were to read it. So my wife and I are going through and listening to the audible version. And then I go back and I, I read the written version too. Absolutely. It's funny you should bring that up. I'm about halfway through that book right now. And I can't agree more with you. The Audible version is just incredible. It is one to not skip for sure. I just picked up a book uh, a week ago in the airport, and I'm just barely starting it, but it's my favorite author, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. And the book is called, I had to look it up because I just got it. I couldn't remember. It's called Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. And it's a collection of uh, stories from uh, the Harlem Renaissance. So if you haven't read any of her work, you really should. She just transports you to a different time and place. Thank you both so much for sharing. I think it speaks so highly of people, what they're reading. It's just so interesting to me. So I appreciate you sharing that with us today. And I'm just so grateful for your time sharing your knowledge with us. And it has just been so profoundly impactful for me. And I know it's going to be incredible for our listeners to hear from both of you. You've had such incredible careers and we're just so lucky to have you on this pilot season of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you and it's been great to be with Heidi as well. Again. Good to see you too, Bob. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe using your favorite podcast player and be sure to give us a rating and review. You could check out more of our content at eccles.link slash business buzz. Until next time, go Utes.